I'm going to send him a message and say, we're going to start, but if you want to join, feel free. Just turn your mic on before you come in. (laughs) Still no red receipt. Now, if Nick does join, then we're going to have to, then I'm going to need that sync clap. (laughs) Do you think, do you think Nick took offense to the, should we soldier on without you (laughs) suggestion? I hope not. (laughs) Okay. I don't think Nick's coming, so. It doesn't seem like it. Could probably start. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, this is our CES show, which probably means that we're going to talk a little bit about CES, but not in too much detail. But, uh, Mike, why don't you start with a couple pieces of follow-up you have first? I think we'll start with what we talked about last week. Yeah. So we mentioned that a couple service providers, mobile service providers, were launching some alternatives to conventional data plans, uh, cell services, that kind of thing. And there was news this week, or rumors, I guess, or indications would probably be most accurate to say, of mm-hmm. Microsoft launching their own uh, LTE SIM cards, a la the Apple SIM. Yeah. And it looks like you'll be able to sign up for their services separate from your uh, regular cell cell plan or service provider. So it's similar to the, I think it was Sugar Mobile that had the uh, in-app data service. Right, yeah. Um, it was Sugar Mobile or the other one. I can't remember specifically off the top of my head. But basically you sign up for the service We using your Microsoft account and you link a device to that app and you're able to use a data plan with that Microsoft SIM and it just pushes the data signal to your device, I guess. And I don't know, they must have some sort of agreement with carriers or that kind of right. thing. But uh, it's, it's really good news, I think, because not only can you have it separate from your data plan, but you don't need a like a cell plan at all. You can just shove this Apple SIM or this Microsoft SIM into your device and, and use it. So right now, I believe it's being uh, planned to use for the Surface. Okay. And I believe guess that's kind of the only device that they have right now. Um, you obviously won't be able to use it with, with the iPad, I'm assuming, because that would kind of defeat the purpose of it being Microsoft specific. Yeah. But it's, um, I guess it depends because in theory you can use an Apple SIM. It's just a SIM card, right? Well, I, I don't know. the right shape. The SIM card would be able to tell what device you're using. So it might, it might not work if it's not in the right device. Can it tell what device you're using? I am using my SIM card on a device that it was never signed up for with. Let's let's put it this way. When I put my FIDO SIM into my unlocked uh, Note 4 that was previously on TELUS, mm-hmm. FIDO now knows I have a Note 4 without me telling them. Really? Yeah. How do, they, how do you know they know? Because on my account, it shows it as a Note 4 as my phone. Interesting. Yeah. I so, bet you anything mine still says I have a Nexus 5. Actually, Nexus 4? Actually, I think I'm lying because now that I'm thinking about it, when I bought when we bought Maria's phone, we bought it under my account to use my Fido dollars. Mm-hmm. So, and just put her SIM card into it, so I'm thinking that maybe that's why that shows up there. So I'd have to check her account. Right. So possibly it could not be this SIM. Hmm. So you may be right in this case. I'd have to might have to yeah. do some follow-up for that. Fido changed everything. Uh, ooh, that's not bad. Yeah, it still, still says I have a Nexus 5 that I have not had in 18 okay. months. <laughs> uh, although my upgrade fee, if I wanted to upgrade, would only be $52. Not bad. But uh, yeah, so this 
LT only SIM card, it's like the Apple SIM. You're, you're, you seem pessimistic in saying that, um, it's not going to be, you're not going to be able to switch it between, but I think it's just going to be like regular SIM card. It, it might be. And I guess with the Apple SIM, you still need a account with a carrier to use it, right? All, yeah, all the Apple SIM does is enable you to go into cellular data settings and pick which carrier you want to sign up with a plan for. Right, but it doesn't work independent of a carrier. Right. Oh, so maybe the Microsoft SIM could be similar. Uh, yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Oh, if it was okay. going, if it was going to be a thing, I assume that's how it would work. Oh, okay. But then who knows? They could do anything. Right. Yeah, because it could be similar to what this other carrier is doing with their yeah. data and just having a bulk bulk purchase and allow users to use it, not having to have a specific carrier. So yeah, interesting. So yeah, that's, that's our first piece of follow-up. Uh, the next one is kind of similar or a related topic with the T-Mobile binge on service. And I guess there's been some scrutiny and criticisms of it that at first they were saying that, you know, you have your unlimited use of their partner uh, mm-hmm. apps and, and services and that I guess in the fine print or as one of the items was that they'd optimize video for other ones that aren't a part of the binge on service. Yeah. And it turns out that this optimization is really just throttling. <laughs> and <laughs> basically, and one of the issues is when they use YouTube as a specific example, when you load up YouTube, YouTube detects your transfer speeds and it uses mm-hmm. the optimal um video speed for for your data speed or video quality sorry for your data speed and with the t-mobile one your default when you're on the binge on i guess is like you know 10 megabits per second for example right download so youtube sees that 10 they load up you know say a 480 or 720p video based on that speed but then when t-mobile sees the youtube video at that quality it throttles it down to 1.5 megabits per second but youtube still thinks you have the 10 and then it's like, okay, now this video is not loading or it's very stuttery or that kind of thing. Right. And there's been a lot of kind of criticism of, well, you know, why are you doing this? This is an optimization. Don't call it that. And mm. yet that shouldn't be a thing in the first place. There's no reason for that, right? Like it's one thing to say YouTube use is going to count towards your data use, but it's another to say, okay, we're going to throttle your speed so that you have a poor experience from it. Yeah. And the side issue is that when people encounter this they'll go to youtube and say hey why isn't your video loading they're not going to think that it might be on t-mobile side that they're throttling their plan because as far as people are concerned their data speed is 10 megabits per second not 1.5 right and and 1.5 is going to give anyone issues i think uh yeah especially when youtube's trying to push you you know a 480p video yeah so that's uh that's kind of where we're at with that and people are kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum with the attitude towards binge on because people were originally quite excited about it and saying, you know, this is a good thing. This is going to encourage change among carriers. But now it's like, okay, well, if you're going to do it, do it properly and don't cause these issues for people when that shouldn't even be a part of the equation. So, yeah, the the craziest thing to me here is that they're saying they optimize these videos, which they're not actually optimizing anything is they're optimizing for 480 which is which they call dvd quality and it's, <laughs> it's not, which isn't really a thing <laughs> no it's it's not a thing and if it was it wouldn't be 480 um yeah i put a link to there there was a whole thing about their ceo jean john legere and his 
his crazy rant against the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And because they were seen the ones, that video, I, I watched part of it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I haven't seen it. I've seen discussion about it, but I haven't actually seen the video yet. Yeah. So he basically went on and sat through, like ranted about, Oh, who are you guys? Who's paying you? And it's like, well, actually they're, they're this, <laughs> they're literally on the frontier. Like they're trying to protect internet rights and they're, they're not funded by any big companies. They're, they're just funded by citizens. And basically it made him look like an idiot for being the CEO of a major telecommunications company that doesn't know who the EFF is. He should, if he doesn't know now, he should definitely know. It's, it's one of those things like, uh, when politicians are asked a question about foreign policy that they should definitely know if they're running for office and they just have no idea. This is what it comes off as. And, and they're, they did some tests that they posted on, uh, EFF.org. Like that gives it away right there. It's nonprofit. .org, yeah. Uh, not that you need to be nonprofit to get .org, but that it's a good signifier that it is. Uh, they did a bunch of tests downloading video or not video and just found that even like they, they, they literally went through a test and found that, uh, T-Mobile did no optimization whatsoever. They just gave you a worse video, worse quality video than, than you're expecting. And if, if there was no possibility to optimize, like they, they used a file that didn't wasn't from YouTube or something that had variable uh, file quality. They just had, it just had like a 720p option. Uh, they tried to download it and it just wouldn't load properly. And if, mm. whereas if you went on YouTube, it would downgrade the quality. This one couldn't. And so it just sputtered because it was video and they were being throttled. Like it's just, they went out of their way to prove that it's throttling and it's not anything else. Mm. Yeah. It's not, not great. <laughs> no. So, yeah, we'll see what developments come of this. Yeah. Uh, T-Mobile is usually good for responding to customer demand. So, mm-hmm. and this is kind of out of character for John Leger to be abrasive or confrontational in his response. Well, in seems. his response to, to customers and complaints, yes, not necessarily, like he's pretty abrasive to other carriers. That's true. But yeah. not, not necessarily individuals or what he perceives as being important groups. Right. Yeah. Which maybe just is more a matter of showing true colors yeah i think in a sense like yeah it's one thing to have an image but it's another to if you're not expected to show a certain way then how do you not naturally react so yeah um and the last piece of follow-up i have anyway is the uh apple headphone jack for the iphone 7 there's been a confirmation (laughs) quote-unquote from a source the the headline was it's true apple will drop headphone jack to make the iphone 7 slimmer says source yeah. And this source is of questionable or unknown kind of source, yeah, I guess. As they always are. They're always yeah. loosely sourced. So a to loose, speak. Well, an anonymous, but apparently in this case, a fairly reliable source. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I guess they've confirmed that yes, the iPhone 7 will have no three and a half millimeter headphone jack. They'll rely on the lightning port for either a lightning headphone jack or a adapter to put a plug in three and a half millimeter or what have you. But there's mm-hmm. another piece of news or or rumor that the new iPhone will also have noise canceling software built into it, right? Which I didn't even realize was a thing. Like I wasn't really even sure how that would work because my understanding of noise canceling was the canceling signal was within the headphone itself that would kind of do it would read the signal, do a feedback, and kind of do dynamic uh, noise canceling in that way. That was my understanding of it anyway. But in this case, it sounds like the iPhone itself will be 
reading, like picking up audio signal and doing noise canceling. So that is kind of interesting if it is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the speculation is that the like the noise canceling isn't going to work with just any headphone. You'd need specific, you know, Apple or Apple certified noise canceling headphones. Right. Even though in theory you should be able to use any set of headphones if the noise canceling is software based. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't know. We'll we'll see where that goes. Yeah. Um. But it's an interesting piece of speculation as there always is with you know new iphones coming up and i think this one if past experience is any indication that it should be released in october i think september, uh, october? september october yeah yeah so we'll keep an eye on on that usually you'll have leaks come out of manufacturers with either you know iphone cases that won't have the headphone jack port or you'll have um, molds that don't have you know the headphone jack or that kind of thing so you'll you'll start seeing a lot this this year I believe so. Yeah. The um, separate from this, there was also a report in nine to five Mac from Mark Gurman, who is well known for being kind of spot on with these, these leaks and his sources were really good. They got the 12 inch MacBook like months before it was announced. They got it pretty much dead on. Hmm. Everything he said in the last couple months has been, or the last couple of years rather has been, pretty spot on right uh and he was saying that he when he said sources confirmed that the the iphone will not include a standard headphone jack it's pretty much taken as fact this came out a couple days after the the other report and leak that had come out but this also this report from our german also went into a bunch of detail about um new headphones specifically wireless headphones that would be made by Apple and would be made by Beats, possibly together uh, with charging cases. So in this case, they would even go as far, or they're possibly thinking about like testing things, going as far as having wireless earbuds that go in either ear but don't actually connect via, via any me- mechanism. And so they would each have their own battery, they would each have their own Bluetooth signal. And like that goes way further than yeah. anybody thought. That sounds like a recipe for desyncing. <laughs> it does <laughs> but uh with with software you could do it like it's it's not much yeah. more complicated than right. doing multi-room speaker i setups, guess that's which true theoretically yeah. do work right um but so there there are other things like this we talked about a long time ago might have even been around last ces uh a product called braggy dash which was a similar idea where there's two separate bluetooth headphones that mm. both connect they connect kind of together and so the battery life on something like that isn't great, but if they're able to get it to work and it comes with, the, the rumor is that it's going to come with a charging case where it would basically, I think it almost would charge wirelessly uh, if it's sitting inside the case, then that might be a good alternative. Right. If you don't have to actually, like if you're not going to listen for more than four hours straight, when you put them away or when you put them down, you yeah. just put them in this charging case. Yeah. That would make it easier. You wouldn't have to plug in two separate <laughs> Bluetooth right. earbuds into different micro USB connectors. Yeah. The the Moto Hint and even the Bluetooth earpiece that, that Maria has right now has the same kind of case that does the charging that you yeah. just yeah. put it into. So I've I really liked that ability because you charge the case and then you just take the case with you. Mm-hmm. And you always yeah. have, have that reserve. So yeah. hopefully if they're going to release earbuds that are separated, they'll sell replacement earbuds 
that yeah. you can just pick up, like either yeah. left or a right. Or if they design them both the same, then it shouldn't matter which one you you have. But I can see a lot of those types of issues come up if they're not connected. Yeah. But yeah, the um, I forget. I'm trying to read it and see if this says. I, I remember reading somewhere that they that they confirmed that uh, the iPhone Seven or the next iPhone, whatever it's called, would come with the lightning headphones by default and i guess they would have to because they're not going to ship with wireless earbuds that that would be crazy right Right. um so yeah i that seems like basically confirmed unless unless the source he's had before that was absolutely right like almost clearly had inside knowledge Mm -hmm. um then this seems like this thing it's going to happen and we've seen this before with apple where they kind of they get out ahead of the possible bad press and in the form of rumors to get people like if people have six months to get used to the fact or the idea right. that it's not going to have a three and a half millimeter headphone jack. Right. Then it's going to be a lot more palatable than if it just comes out of nowhere. Right. Well, and I think that's, yeah, it's its own form of PR and mm-hmm. market research because like every tech company does this now. Every time you see a leak, there's... I'd, I'd say 100% if I knew that wasn't an exaggeration, <laughs> but a large percentage of the time, it's an intentional leak. Yeah. Because yep. it's like, why wouldn't you leak something if you want to gauge, it? yeah, like you said, either people's response or just allow people to get used to that idea. Right. It's the same thing when, with Samsung, you know, when it's like, oh, they're not going to have expandable storage anymore. <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know, that allows people to get used to it and to talk about it and come up with solutions or that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and now with the new Galaxy, the S7, they're going, there's rumors that they're going to bring back the expandable storage. Yep. Um, the Nexus devices still, their stance is, well, too complicated for consumers, I think is what the party line was. I don't know what that comes from. It's like, oh, what do you mean there's two places to store things? That's just, oh, if I have an app on external storage, what do you mean I can't access it? And that's just, yeah. well, apparently I that get that to a certain extent, but it's not a great reason for, because no. people who aren't going to use it just won't. And people who are really like yeah. having it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Unless, well, unless you're, unless you're a guy that knows or a person knows how to use it, you'd go out and buy one and use it. But if it didn't come with one, if you didn't, weren't going to use it, you wouldn't buy one. Yeah. So I don't know, whatever. Yeah, there's also the the reasoning that I keep hearing or seeing every time this discussion comes up where everything is basically streamed now. You don't actually need a bunch of space, which to a certain point is true, but only if your device has, in my experience, and and there's there have been stuff that has been posted uh, backing it up that if you have 32 or 64 gigs and you don't take a lot of video, then you're probably yeah. okay. But 16 gigabytes when half of that or almost half is being taken up by... Yeah. The operating system, it's just not enough. Yeah. Like for me, I've always, the old, the biggest phone I've ever had was a 16 gig, which is my Nexus 4. Yeah. And my new phone is now a 32 gig. And I should be fine with that because the biggest issue I had was running out of space just for apps. Because mm-hmm. like you said, the operating system takes up a bunch. And if I'm not staying on top of either the app cache size or just my off- online or uh, offline image and video storage, then mm-hmm. it fills up quite quickly. But yeah. with 32 gigs, I'll, I'll never have that issue. So, Yeah. it's <laughs> yeah. I've been noticing, I don't know if it's a bug in Google Photos, but the Google Photos app on my iPhone, I'm just looking at it right now, has 6.4 gigabytes of <laughs> storage in it. 
So it's, it's obviously it's, it's when it's backing up stuff, it's unintentionally leaving it cached for oh. clearly much longer than it should. Right. But, uh, so I have five, I have out of my 64 gigabyte phone, I have 5.2 gigabytes available and six of it is just Google photo backups right. that didn't cache, didn't uncache properly. Right. There's a new that I didn't, I didn't add this to the the notes to this week, but there's a new phone that was originally on Kickstarter that I think is going to start shipping now where it actually comes with uh locker storage for apps. So say you download apps and start running out of room you can mm. denote an app as being stored on in a cloud type storage where i'd imagine it would back up your data like just app data and all that kind of stuff but take it off your phone so that you can add new apps and then when you want another app again you can you know cloud store another one bring back another one and it just mm-hmm. starts working again it won't have to, you know, you won't have to re-download it, reset up your settings and all that kind of stuff. It'll just have your original stuff just backed up into a cloud. But right. you can only ever access what your phone has storage for, but you can flip back and forth between various apps. So you can have, and there's a hundred gigabytes of cloud storage. Hmm. So you can download a ton of apps and obviously music and that kind of stuff. And then when you need it, you just access it via the cloud. So it's an interesting uh, solution to running out of storage for apps because for me i'll download a bunch of apps i only ever use apps like other than the key apps i'll use an app you know once a year kind of thing when i need it but i still like to have it if i in case i need it and in this case it would allow you to do that where you keep it offline um or off your phone until you need it and then you kind of re-download it use it and then bring it back right that's very odd it's it's odd but it's different and it i think it's a good different because yeah it's it gets people kind of innovating and coming up with solutions for something like you know a mm-hmm. set amount of storage on your phone right and this you said this is just a regular android phone that's for sale like yeah, that's one an, of its key features yeah it's an android based phone but one of its features is that it allows you to do that and it's obviously mm-hmm. it's not phone specific you could bake that into whatever yeah yeah you know phone that you want but this specific phone is shipping with that right so yeah, it's worth pointing out, I think, that Apple has a similar, as of iOS 9, has a similar thing where, especially, they specifically use this when you're doing an update that requires a bunch of space. They will offer to delete, on, or not delete, I guess, with, I forget what the terminology is, but they basically cold store apps they need that are taking up space on your phone to be able to do the update. And then once the update's installed, they'll put them, put everything back the way it was. Right. Basically, like, move things out of the way to clear the update through which i find intriguing and for me if oh look we have nick we do hey nick (laughs) in Uh, in nick's favor rob you did say fct you said 1030 fct yeah just that's on the record that's why i wasn't here hours (laughs) earlier uh uh, well, in that case, I accept full responsibility, but I'm still going to say uh, there's a calendar event <laughs> and you're invited to it. I'm, I don't appear to be accepting those. I, you don't. That's true. <laughs> I do apologize. I, um, it does say FCT. I could change it if that would make you feel better. But well, if you, if you change it to EST, then 
It would make a yeah. lot more sense and we wouldn't have had near as much confusion. No, we wouldn't. Fortunately, Nick, we have not gotten to anything that I think you are worried about. Oh, have you just covered uh, covered CES to this point? We're still in follow-up, actually. Oh, my. We had a series of unfortunate events that made us start a bit later, maybe 20 minutes late. <laughs> wow, we, we've got... Oh, is Mike... Uh, <laughs> Is Mike taking on the whole all caps titles? Yeah, he is. Oh, in this case, it's sarcastic. I believe. I don't see oh, why. Th- that was just because that was because the article had them as all caps. I just called. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But yeah, we were we were right in the middle of finishing up with this very first piece of follow up because we've already covered the second and third one. Uh. So yeah, I was saying that I was talking about the iPhone and things pushing out of the way to like deleting apps to give you room to uh, install an update. And like that, that's really intriguing. But I've also like, if you told me that I had won a free new iPhone with more storage or was the new model or whatever, I would legitimately have no problem throwing this out the window and having full confidence that I wouldn't lose a single byte of data. So I don't, I wouldn't particularly need this Android phone because everything I have is in Gmail or Google drive or yeah. Or something like I have nothing local to this phone that I care about. Right. I don't know. The do, only, do you guys have that same experience? The only thing I wish you could do with phones in general, because I've, to my knowledge, there isn't a way to do this. But like when I swapped out my my Nexus Four, I was the same way. I just I still have it sitting in a drawer. I haven't done anything with it, but I didn't have to do any transfers of anything. I just re-downloaded the apps I wanted. Yeah. And I, I set up my home screens the exact same way that I have it on my other one. But I wish there's a way, and there may be apps that do this, that capture your not only which specific apps are downloaded. Like Google Play has a history of which ones you have downloaded, mm-hmm. but it doesn't say which ones are currently downloaded on whatever phone. Yeah. So I had to go and re-download them all and then set them up in a way that mirrored what I wanted. Mm-hmm. So if there's a way to save like a profile of your home screen layout and you know widgets and all that kind of stuff and just... Yeah get get your phone to read that and say okay that makes sense and then do that that would be great because that's that's all i'd need because like you said data you know pictures contacts i don't that's all cloud-based so i don't need to worry about transferring any of that um my computer is the same way like i have a desktop google drive folder that i do all my storage and i don't store anything locally and so when i had to swap out my solid state drive because it failed and had to go get a new one i just brought it back and got my new one and re-downloaded all my my software because i hadn't downloaded a ton by that point but data wise i didn't have to do any sort of uh transfer because it was all backed up on on google drive yeah um yeah i I completely agree about the apps thing i mean it it would be nice to have a way to save the profile but for now just it's a matter of re-downloading and re-logging into everything yeah one and setting up the home screen layout that's one of the more annoying yeah, parts yeah, yeah. because i have to if i didn't have my old phone already with me if i had lost it i probably wouldn't remember specifically exactly what apps were put where mm. i usually go back into accidental screenshots and <laughs> figure out oh, where my apps I, were that's yeah that's probably a good <laughs> idea actually once i have a good layout i'll just take screenshots yeah yeah so nick you brought up crispr this i guess you'd call it advanced genetic modification technology uh this week and we've talked about in past episodes that you were you were not necessarily involved in the discussion was 
Was there something that you specifically wanted to follow up on with CRISPR? Yeah. Um, do you remember off the top of your head what you actually covered with respect to CRISPR? Very yes. basic. We basically mentioned that it was the technique used for this mosquito uh, genetic So you just mentioned that it was the technique used. Yeah. Do you realize how CRISPR works? It's not fully, but enough to know that it's amazing. <laughs> it's like I listened to a story about it this past week, which is why I was so excited about it. Mm -hmm. It could be the future of everything. Not yeah. like everything, everything, because, you know, physics and chemistry are still things, but everything, everything. Like, and this is one example of how you start researching one thing and you never know exactly what you're going to find. Right. CRISPR was discovered in a, after a commercial project in which they were trying to figure out why exactly their yogurt was spoiling. <laughs> okay. Hmm. Yeah. And so... I think it was, I think the way it works is CRISPR was the virus they discovered from that. And it's just, it's like a, it's like a bloodhound ish sort of kind of, mm -hmm. you have to, you say to crit or well say I'm anthropomorphizing this you know, <laughs> to an That's incredible fine. degree, but you say to CRISPR, it's CRISPR is like a bloodhound. So you like, Give the sock the scent of what you want CRISPR to find. And CRISPR's like, okay, okay, I can go get that. And so CRISPR goes and then it snips that specific part of the genome out of everything it finds. Hmm. So you can yeah. just straight up remove a gene from an entire, like an entire organism via CRISPR. And like they've, oh, what did they do? They, the, one of the re lead researchers has, or an acquaintance, but like it's his son's friend. Mm -hmm. His son's friend has mus muscular dystrophy. And so what he did was he sequenced the genome of his son's friend and they found a part of the genome that was aberrant from like all the other known genomes out there. Mm-hmm. And so they, they, you know, they took that part of the genome and they said, here, CRISPR, here, CRISPR, go get a boy. <laughs> and, you know, released CRISPR into a living cell. Uh, what do you want to say? Culture? Yeah, culture. Okay. And so tested it after. And that sequence of the genome had been entirely eliminated. <laughs> so like. You could be treating disease with CRISPR. You could be, you could be gen genetically engineering babies with CRISPR. You could, like the possibilities with CRISPR seem almost limitless. Right. Cake. My first thought after hearing all of that and and the stuff that we had talked about before is that you buried the now lead I'm with terrified. the mosquito story. Now I'm terrified because in the hands of a supervillain or some equivalent, <laughs> you could – like is CRISPR contagious? You're saying it's a, it's literally a virus that can do this. Could you could you not just take out an important piece of DNA for life? Like instructions on how to, I don't know, replicate – to have DNA replicate itself and then all life would just end. 
I mean, I guess. <laughs> it seems like if it if it is, I don't know if it's actually if it can be transmitted. I don't if like if the virus is contagious, but it sounds like it has scary possibilities. I don't know that it's that contagious. Mm-hmm. Like the way it works is is sort of kind of piggybacking off of your immune system. Okay. As I understand it. And so like CRISPR infects your immune system and then your immune system ta- actually takes things out. But mm. I mean, okay. I don't know. I would have been better prepared for this, but I thought we were starting <laughs> in an hour. <laughs> Again, I, I'm very sorry. I'm, I'm glad that you can say you're sorry with the Canadian accent there. <laughs> <laughs> it, honest, uh, honestly rob you 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 you're a bit of a hoser this week but uh you know we're we're still cool right we're cool yeah. do you want to go for a rip <laughs> <laughs> pick up a powder jelly on the way <laughs> oh no um so how about this we will all go and do a bit more research on CRISPR, and then we will come back informed mm. and discuss it next week but I mean, I don't know. We should just like have an all CRISPR special because honestly, like also the food supply, the food supply could just be completely changed. You find mm-hmm. that you find that your corn is vulnerable to a pest. Find out what the pest is attracted to. Get rid of it. Nick, Nick, we already have CRISPRs in our food supply. <laughs> <laughs> I don't oh, know what no. you're talking about. Oh, no. Well, 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 Mike, I'm talking about the clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. Okay. Yeah. Not not the chip and not a cracker, but a crisper? Yeah. Or the vegetable okay. crisper in the bottom of the fridge. Oh, there That's you go. That's what I was thinking about, too. yeah. Oh, no. There's all kinds of crispers. Snack food thought <laughs> process. Oh, man. Uh, okay, the last. let's get out of follow-up here. The last piece of follow-up we have is, in my opinion... The very coolest one, because we learned at the end of this past week that next weekend, around the time that we're finishing up our episode, SpaceX is planning to launch another uh, Falcon 9 rocket. And this one is going to be putting some atmospheric or not atmospheric, oceanic testing equipment into space, uh, a couple satellites or maybe just one big satellite. And they're going to try again to land on a an autonomous drone ship in the ocean and apparently tomorrow they're doing the another like their static test fire and then the whole week is just kind of getting ready for it but uh they're going again for the the first takeoff and what, what do we call it again vertical <laughs> vertical takeoff landing. Yes, vertical takeoff and landing i don't know why i always forget that but but this isn't this isn't that thing though this is an actual launch and then land. What Blue Origin did was v- vertical takeoff landing. Yeah, I mean, this is vertical takeoff and landing, well, but with also going to space in between. Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah, right. And so I think... Tomorrow, tomorrow, <laughs> I love you. Tomorrow, you're only a day away. Seems forced. <laughs> Why forced? Uh do you not just randomly Do, break out into song? Well, I br- break out into song, but that that connection is tenuous. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm I'm really excited for this. I I feel like they've gotten out all the kinks. They did the the dry landing test, 
And this is going to be next weekend is going to be the big one. We're going to see them finally succeed at landing on an ocean platform. Hmm. That's, That's exciting. Yeah. And I'm also interested because this is like there's important um, atmosphere or not atmospheric again, oceanic, but like climate change testing that needs to be done with the satellite they're launching. So that'll also be interesting. But the results from that, whether that's successful or not, will take a bit longer. But yeah, I'm, I'm very interested. Are we going to see next a battery powered rocket? Not for a while, probably. Okay. Maybe solar powered. A battery powered rocket? Because <laughs> well, it, it's, it's Tesla, so, yeah. you know, a, a natural connection. Clearly. Legal batteries. <laughs> All right. Uh, we have, we, we set last week as a goal to talk about NFC. We're already, we're already going so long to only be done follow up now. Uh, Holy Mike, cow, we've been talking for like, yeah, well, half an hour, I guess. Well, we've been recording for like yeah. 51 minutes. <laughs> Uh, Mike, CES for this week, we have yes. a few things we want to talk about and you were leading the tech charge on posting links. So what, what, what excited you the most about CES? What excited me the most? I think the most relevant, the non, the biggest non gimmicky thing that came out of CES that didn't seem to get a lot of press in my exposure to, to what people were talking about was like LG literally had a rolled up tv there Mm -hmm. like it was a tv showing live changing picture that was rolled up like a newspaper right and it was really cool and it was a very it was rolled up and was shoved inside this kind of stand and i couldn't tell from the video if the stand was giving it power and feeding it the video signal or if it was coming from somewhere else um because it seemed like it wasn't the kind of thing that you'd be able to kind of analog to a tablet type form factor where it didn't have to be having like a rigid power supply and video source type setup mm-hmm. you, you, in the link that I posted there's a video there that shows it in action and that kind of thing and the guy reviewing it um or the hands on anyway Yep, but I think it's really, really cool to see you know a rolled up TV because not two years ago that was like science fiction. Yeah, so it's cool that there's companies working on this right now, and obviously it's not just LG. Like everyone and their dog is probably working on this type of technology because that's the next natural, yeah, for uh, sure progression for this kind of thing. Uh, But yeah, I thought that was really cool. The other thing I found was a uh, like a Google uh, glasses type. Um, or Google Glass, I should say, type uh, heads-up display that uh, one of our friends at Mobile Syrup talked about. Yeah, and it was a uh, it was geared, no pun intended, <laughs> towards cyclists, and they're attaching to the sunglasses. Yeah, um, it could go on to any glasses type setup, I'd imagine. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it might be built more kind of towards the. It has integrated with the Garmin ecosystem so if you have a garmin gps or activity tracker that kind of thing it should be able to tap into that and show you speed uh you know a gps map that kind of thing so it's, it's really cool as i was driving the other day i'm like because i had a navigation type thing set up and i'll usually throw google maps on if i'm driving and put it in like the cup holder next to my steering wheel but if i had like a heads-up display that'd be perfect that's all i'd need because you know 
the risk obviously is you have notifications come in that distract you, but you could obviously have those disabled for a heads up display. And if you even just had navigation kind of in like one corner as you're driving, yeah. so you kind of know what street sign you're looking out for that kind of thing while keeping your eyes on the road, that'd be, that'd be really good. So I think this is a good, uh, good innovation or adaptation for existing technology, I should say. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Did you see anything that you liked coming out of CES or did you have any comments about well, in I, I, in writing this, I had to do some research on, on Garmin itself. And I learned that they have this whole line of products specifically for obviously very seasoned cyclists or people willing to spend a lot of money on, you know, cycling safely and, and connectedly. They also partner with Strava. Yeah. Yeah. They do. Uh, but so there's also, there's a, they have a thing that were, integrates with this very vision heads up display thing. And, but you attach it to the back of your bike and it bas- it provides rudimentary radar to tell you if any cars are approaching from behind oh, cool. and what side they might be coming from. I thought that was crazy and it would be so nice to have for a lot of cyclists because if you're on city streets and in and out of traffic, it can be terrifying just having no idea what's behind you, having to judge based on sound and, and really based on intuition whether there's somebody behind you or not. Right. That would be handy and you wouldn't necessarily have to look back or I know there are some drivers or some bikers have mirrors on the on their handlebars yep. that they use to check behind them, but this would make it much easier. And if you had the heads up display as well, you wouldn't have to, even have to look back at all. You would get, a, right. I think it's a little warning light or something that comes on, or a little display that says there's a thing yeah. behind you on the left. You should even be able to have a camera back there, shouldn't you? In theory, that in theory, but that would be crazy. It just like shows you that your like rear view video on the on your well, like display. It, the the visualization would be similar to like a rear view mirror, just be like a strip, and just showing like a reduced. You don't have a full like seven twenty p video of right. what's behind you. Now I'm picturing like a hollow lens. It'd be kind of a waste of capacity. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine HD video streaming over Bluetooth or something. <laughs> exactly, that's what I mean. Like just. Yeah. A, just an image of what's behind you mm-hmm. like or a low quality video yeah i mean even if you had like two or three frames a second you don't need an hd yeah. well, 1080 30 yeah. frame a second thing i think two i think that type of frame rate would be distracting if it's just flashing and changing that often but yeah for sure <laughs> uh, but in terms of stuff that i found interesting I, I wanted to just point out maybe this is just me but this this flexible display it's not really a tv it's 18 no, inches it's, well, this is LG's fault. LG wrote the, or not LG, CNET wrote CCN. the headline, but yeah. it's not really a TV. It's just a display. Well, sorry. Sorry, your rolled up display isn't big enough for you, Rob. No, but I mean, okay, that, that's fine. I'm not saying it's, <laughs> I'm not bad about the technology. It's just like, this is right. what we'd seen previously was, you know, we'd seen rolled displays before kind of, but they were really weird and there was like a bump or something that integrated all the electronics and but they were tiny like they were tablet size maybe so this is the next generation but it's not it's not like a 65 inch thing that's rolled up it's just a slightly larger thing it's always when a bit size with you 65 Rob. inches to move or to like mm. I, i'm okay so think about now if you have a 55 65 inch tv and you need to move it somewhere you need to like hire movers and you need to you need like a big like a truck or something or a big van you couldn't just roll it up, roll up a display and throw it in your trunk you rob, just need like move two people rob when you move do you move one trunk load at a time i have you obviously no. haven't moved very much furniture so, because <laughs> couches are generally bigger than tvs I, what? I, I, okay listen 
the <laughs> generally speaking. I'm thinking of other applications for this. I'm not talking about literally moving from one house to another house. I'm talking about like if you want to if you want to take displays, say to something like CES, you don't want to bring a whole rack of monitors. You want or a big rack of 65 inch TVs to set up in your display area. It would be much simpler to have a a bundle of rolled up displays that you can just unfurl and like they weigh. It really it's the weight that's more of a thing than the size, the foldableness. Yeah, but it it's the fact that it's so thin and it it can become very self-contained in a small area. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very interested. Yeah. I think it's just cool they had a working prototype. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. The future of robbing will be just just fraught. It's like, okay, is that a poster or is it a television? I better grab it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. That's what you got to do when you're away. You want to have just a static image of like the Backstreet Boys on your TV. So it looks like a poster instead of <laughs> instead of a TV. <laughs> it's good. I like definitely. Uh, Nick, you uh, you had one piece of interesting news you saw from CES. What was that? Oh my god! So they had these little harnesses on dogs, so that you could mount a, bo- a GoPro to the back of the dog. It was so <laughs> cute. The dog was like running around all happy to see people because, you know, it's a dog. Yep. Oh, it was marvelous. If that this is the future of technology, people. <laughs> Cute dog Did, videos. Oh, I was going to say, is a GoPro on the head or on the back? It was uh, kind of, I mean, if you're comparing to humans, it was kind of between the shoulder blades. Okay. So it wasn't following where the dog was looking. Like body-wise well, it was, but not head-wise. You see, I think if I'm remembering the... Uh, the video correctly and memory science would suggest that i'm not uh (laughs) it was on the shoulder blades and angled up but when the dog raised its head to look at someone it was like same angle oh okay Mm. so kind of on its neck almost uh well i mean it, it was a golden retriever so the base of its neck is getting pretty close to its shoulder blades or i guess it's just true of all dogs but they really raise up a lot when they t- when they yeah. look at you, right. I was going to say when they talk to you, because because <laughs> I talk uh, to dogs and that's what happens. And they talk back. Well, actually, I don't know if I've discussed this on the podcast, but I frequently talk. I'll talk to the dog and then I'll fill in the dog's part of the conversation, but in the dog's voice. I also have to decide on what the dog's voice is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah, but. Uh, no, I'd be really curious to see that side of things. I really want yeah. to mount one on Bailey, my family's dog, and see how yeah. that yeah. goes. Now, to to be fair, this isn't the most pointless thing at CES. Because it's I, not. I, I heard about vacuums that had what like web, webcams. Vacuums with webcams. This yeah, is a game changer. <laughs> so yeah, oh, and man. and I think that's a nice segue into Rob. Your your first point there yeah yeah uh this was the first year where i had to wake up in the morning and figure out what was important that happened at ces or what would rank things at least in order of importance whether or not anything was actually important people can decide and, and a lot of people did voice their their opinions uh i found in the same way as a lot of the sort of what I'm going to call the tech press that I follow on Twitter and on social media. 
people tend are very disengaged with CES. And in fact, a lot of them chose to not even go, even though they had the opportunity, basically because it's just this massive, glitzy, shiny thing where nothing of importance happens. And if, if something important does happen during that week, it's generally not even there or it's at an event that's held, but it's not on the actual show floor. When they, when they say consumer electronics, they really mean this is a thing for the consumers are going to care about, but that sort of the media has no or little to no interest in. And you see every tech site, maybe not everyone, but all the big ones having live blogs and having daily roundups and roundup videos. And I'm just like, I had to think, even though I followed it, I would never watch, even though I followed as it was going on, I would never go and watch one of these roundup videos or follow a live blog of an event at CES because it, it just seems like so much money and time and effort going into this thing that is going to yield very little in the long term. It's all, I mean, except that the consumers are where you make your money. Yeah. And so they uh, basically fuel the whole machine. Yeah. Right. I, it, it just seems like it's very easy to quickly, if you follow it for one or two years, it's very easy to just completely disengage from it and not want to participate in any way. And in, in fact, ignore it all and, and block keywords on Twitter and, and all of this stuff. And I can definitely see that having covered it even just one year. I, it's something that I could easily do without. But, but Rob, they, they came up, with a new harness to attach a GoPro to a dog. Like, how would right. you know about that if you didn't follow the CES show? Or that CES that is probably, yeah, that's the most interesting news that came out of CES. I There's no argument there. Although, I mean, did you see Reddit's reaction to CES at all? No, not not specifically. There were There were a few stories as I was scrolling through the other day about the virtual reality porn that, you know, they've come up with. <laughs> I did see that. Yes. New or anything that's been around. For... Yeah. Apparently it's very good though. Yeah. Was, uh, <laughs> I'm told. I, I think they were displaying it on Oculus or something like that. And yeah. yeah. At CES or it was in a hotel room at, in Vegas during CES. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Is what I saw. All right. Cause mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. A lot of the bloggers were just like, well, let's latch onto this one. <laughs> Like everything else is derivative and boorish, but there's porn to be had. Porn. The very oldest thing. <laughs> One of now, the oldest things, yeah. Yeah. It's like as crack.com has pointed out, whenever there's a new technology, we quickly try and see have sex with it. Well, not have <laughs> sex with it, but use it to display <laughs> that. Yeah. Okay, so we're all consumers. Are right? we? We are. We are, whether you like it or not, or see it or not, we are. Would would any of you enjoy being at CES aside from being semi tech journalists or tech aware people? Would you be able to have a suspension of I don't want to say suspension of disbelief because that's not what it is, but the hipsterism? equivalent of this suspend your hipsterism, be like, oh, well, sure. this was like mm-hmm. news yeah. years ago, and oh my god, they're selling it to people, whatever. Not not even that, but it's like you see a dog with a GoPro on it, and you you could avoid being what's the point of that and just being just having fun. Rob, you might mm-hmm. want to bleep this, but I, Mike, if there was a dog running around at CES, I would just lose my shit, and that would be my next like 
10 hours playing with the dog. <laughs> I'm ashamed to say if I had a dog and a GoPro, there's a greater than 50% chance I'd buy that harness. Interesting. It's it's approaching yeah, certainty with me. Like Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that it, being said, Rob, okay. You know, we we've talked about, you know, going to CES or going to some type of event like that. We have, yeah. W- would CES be something you'd be okay going to in light or despite of your feelings towards the actual tech there? I would be interested to go if reporting on it in video in interview in whatever form i think would get really old really fast so in that sense i don't think i wouldn't want to go to work right for, like to to report on it right but i think it'd be cool i've never been to las vegas i think that would be interesting i wouldn't right. gamble like i don't gamble i don't but it'd be interesting to to see it yeah oh my and... god rob we should go and count cards <laughs> i feel like that would be something we would be good at i'm pretty sure that's not sanctioned by casinos and they would just throw you out yeah no it's absolutely illegal, not though. sanctioned it's i never said it's illegal but it's not sanctioned yeah they'll they kick would you just out but you could make you. money in the process like if you're not yeah. into gambling then yeah. don't gamble just game the system that's fair i but although i've heard that if you're counting cards and this is a complete divergence if you're counting cards you're not necessarily going to make a lot of money really quickly you just no. have to keep doing it and you will in the net make money and yeah. that you can, if you, if you do it for hours or days or weeks, you can make a lot of money, but it's not something where you just walk in for a day and cash out with a million dollars. And if, if movies have taught me anything, you need a team. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> that's where the three of us could kind of work our magic, I think. Well, I've also wondered, like, I mean, you know, like horse races or just races yes. of any kind, mm-hmm. if you just bet on the favorite to show, I imagine <laughs> over the long term you'd make money, but you would make very little money. At any given transaction. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I bet there's, yeah, there are systems like that for, like, I mean, at that point, you may as well just invest in index funds or something. <laughs> if I go and bet on the on the favorite to show at every race for years, if I, bet I can on, make 1% you may as well over. Just <laughs> bet on the market to increase because yeah. you may as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I would. I would love to go and see CES once. I'm, I'm not against ever visiting it because I think it'd be cool. But as a human being, I have been to exhibitions before. Like I've gone to the Calgary Stampede exhibition and generally I can last two to three hours maybe walking around there before I get insanely bored. And just I would want the opportunity not only to not have to work, but to be able to leave whenever I wanted. Right. It's just like it might be interesting. And so I'd like to go see it. But if it wasn't, if the, nothing there was remotely interesting, right. I wouldn't I would want to be able to leave. And I I would love to be able to take anything I wanted that I found interesting. But I feel like anything you go and see is going to be it's going to cost money and it's probably going to be expensive, too. Or not going to be available for purchase. There. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Unless we like vastly increase our viewership. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Now, a craft show, a craft show I can deal with. Craft shows usually have food. That's true. That's true. And free CS samples. would have food. Like, yeah. Dogs. CS would have some food. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know if it's going to be the same. food? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, seriously, like, probably the best salsa I've ever had was from the last uh, show we went to here in Calgary. Craft show. Shout out to Trogi. I think it's Trogi. The the last thing I, w- I wanted to talk about with CES was 
just this Faraday Future car that was launched. Um, Faraday Future is a company that came onto the scene kind of almost secretly, like people that the mainstream media didn't really talk about it or notice it at all until Apple announced, or there was a rumor that Apple was going to be making a car. And then everyone started looking at this company and going, wait, is this an, like a, a subsidiary of Apple that is their front for making a car? Cause nobody knew anything about what was going on. And then, they, so they unveiled the prototype at CES and it's, it's still a couple of years away from ever being available, but it was sort of, we made a car, here's a concept for it. And it's very, so it's similar an idea to Tesla. And I just, whether or not, I don't think it doesn't seem like based on the design that it's an Apple car, like it doesn't seem like it's a subsidiary, but in theory, they could be partnering with them. So like Faraday feature would be working on this technology and coming up with prototypes and stuff. And then in a couple of years down the road, there would be an Apple branded version using that same integrated uh, electronics and technology and battery tech and all that stuff. So it remains to be seen, but there was also murmurs this week that car related Apple domains were being bought up by a company that it has been known to be a front for Apple. Like I think apple.car was one of them that was bought by Apple. So it's like, if you're not working on any car stuff, why are you buying this? Right. But so I'm I'm intrigued by the future of electric cars, but it does still seem like other than Tesla and I think there was a is it Chevy that released the Bolt? I think it was. It had a 200 mile range and Volt was no. It's a new car called the Bolt. I oh, believe. actually, yeah. So a 200 mile range wow. and thirty thousand dollars. So it's it's a little worse version of what Tesla is talking about doing in a couple of years. So oh. intrigued to see how that kind of plays out because that could be very interesting if the technology is right. But other than that, CES was mostly just, hey, this is a gadget, and it does the same thing as a bunch of other stuff that already existed, but it's slightly better and different. Right. Yeah. That was CES for me. Do you guys, uh, <laughs> we're coming up so, we're going so long, and yet we still didn't talk about NFC or any of the other stuff that happened this week. Nick, what did you have first-ish? Oh, man. How a man-made tidal lagoon could change the future of clean energy. Seriously, click on that link and go look at it. Okay. I'm just, I'm actually going to give you a minute to click on that link and go look at it. Because this could legitimately be the future of tidal energy. Hmm. I'm, I'm glad that says rendering in there because right away. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they haven't built it yet. That's not the story. Right. But uh, tidal energy has been, you know, that's been the promise of renewable baseline energy for quite a while. Right. But as with a lot of hydro energy, there can be significant uh, ecological impacts whenever you set up shop. Like, it's usually, I guess what they're doing is just damming, you know, the base of a river or something like that. And so when water goes in or comes out, as it's always doing in a high tide situation or a, you know, high tide flux details. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, you're completely blocking off wildlife if you do that if you do something like that and if you're not blocking them off you might be doing what you're doing to the american eel right now in the saint lawrence and turning it into pink slime right so like the then the question remains how can you generate energy from tidal 
or from the tides, but without being significantly disruptive to the ecosystem. And so what they've come up with are these little lagoon kind of things. So when the tide flows in, it's either good. I mean, based on the look of it, I don't know if you're expecting waves to splash up into it or something, (laughs) or you just open the reservoirs and allow the lagoon to fill. And then when the tide goes out, you open, but it'll spin the other way. And then it's going to go backwards. Either way, you can generate energy from the turbines being forced, as I understand it. Right. But I mean, this is really cool because the other thing that apparently comes up as an issue is uh, erosion and losing coastline. But if you put up these lagoons to kind of break the waves that are continuously hammering uh, hammering the shores in high tide situations, you can alleviate that too. Right. So, I mean, what do you guys think? Because as far as I understand it, when we're talking about going into a renewable energy future, baseline capacity is really the limiting factor. Because it's always, oh, you know, we'll install a lot of wind turbines and a lot of solar panels and everything will be great. And yeah, no, it won't. Because you either have to, you have to have grid-wide storage for just tremendous amounts of energy. Because people aren't using that much energy between like midnight and 7 a.m. Right. But there's still a lot of energy given, you know, whatever population you're dealing with. And grid-wide storage is going to be challenging. So you either have that tremendous problem or you have to generate it somehow. So, I mean, one of my favorite options is garbage plasmification. But that means that you're not recycling your plastics and people get ornery about that. And it's that or it's geothermal and geothermal has its problems or it's nuclear and people hate nuclear because they're ill-informed and yeah, so this could be, especially for, I don't know, jurisdictions like Atlantic Canada or British Columbia. Wait, does British Columbia have tides? I'm an idiot. They would. I'd assume they would. Yeah. I would hope. <laughs> All right, because they call it tide water. Yeah. It's an ocean. So. And that was the time that Nick was an idiot. So long and short, with these coastal jurisdictions that we have, that could be a big part of future baseline energy until you explained how tidal electricity is generated i got it confused with wave generated oh yeah energy, which is where they have like those flotation things that bob up and down with the waves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so that's i learned something there about tidal generation um and yeah I, as far as baseline energy goes when we went to that geothermal thing i didn't even I wasn't familiar with what the specific implication of baseline energy is, but I think the way the guy described it was, was pretty enlightening how here we're used to just turning on the light switch and you have electricity, but if you don't have base sufficient baseline energy, you wouldn't be able to do that necessarily. So I think what you're saying is, is true that baseline is kind of what you need. That's what you're going for when it comes to, to energy in general, and especially alternative, if you're trying to replace something like, like gas fired or coal fired power plants. Mm. So, um, as far as this being a viable alternative, I, 
the only context I've heard of title generation was in Australia, because I think that's a fairly big uh, locale for, for this kind of thing. I was going to say, and, they have a lot of coast, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> and so I, I couldn't comment on the effects it's had down there, but I know that people have had mixed feelings on how it's played out, because I think it's similar to what you're saying. It has an impact on the ecosystem that it's set up in. So I think if this, like you're saying, if it solves that issue of the ecosystem effect, but also effectively generates that power. Yeah. Um, I, I don't see why you wouldn't at least try it to see if it could be a solution elsewhere as well. Yeah. Well, I feel like, um, it, it will probably have its own impacts because everything you do does. Everything does. Yeah, exactly. So I'm actually curious to see whether you'll get little ecosystems within the lagoons, but right. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe ducks would like it or something. <laughs> ducks like fresh water, don't they? <laughs> Gulls, maybe? Seagulls. Yeah, you could have seagull, yeah. little seagull population there. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> Osprey. Osprey might really <laughs> like it. That would be a great way to keep fish out of them. Hmm. Robert, you were reserving yeah. judgment? Oh, yeah, I'm going to hold out judgment. I'm enjoying listening to you guys talk about it. I don't really have anything <laughs> to add that's different. I'm intrigued. Right? And it like so, it looks beautiful, the yeah. mock-up. I, I just, when I saw that, I thought, how expensive is that going to be to build? Because if the expense outweighs... <laughs> small island? Any, <laughs> yeah. If it if the design and expense outweighs the benefit of using it as an alternative energy source, I I think it's kind of overkill if you're going to design it that way. But um, although I just sorry, go ahead. I just want to point out the second sentence of this article says it's not the plant size that's striking, but it could ultimately power 155,000 homes for 120 years. That seems like it's probably going to recoup the costs. <laughs> well, most hydropower does recoup its initial costs. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Unless it's trillions of dollars, it's probably going to be okay. I I feel like if I were an eccentric billionaire, I would seriously consider building one of those as my, like, oh, I can't have a private island. I will build one and then make money from the power it generates. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, for sure. Anything else on the the title Lagoon? I... I think that's pretty exciting for the yeah. moment. I highly Mike, encourage you to read the article because it's, it's yeah, really yeah. I, I like the idea that every place is trying to come up with an alternative energy source that makes sense for that location. Mm-hmm. Like there isn't going to be just one blanket alternative energy source to replace or alleviate the reliance on hydrocarbons. Like we talked about the solar solar panel setup that they're trying to experiment with in the Middle East and Africa. Mm-hmm. Yeah that you know it makes sense for there there's a lot of sun and there's a lot of open space in this case it's the uk there's a lot of coastline and tidal tidal systems i guess that that make it work so and i think you know in alberta there's a lot of we don't have geothermal we don't have quite well, as much tide water in alberta <laughs> no we have we have wind and we have geothermal reservoirs so i think that's kind of going to be and we have a lot of sun too uh, not direct you know high energy producing sunlight but a lot of sun in any case yeah that i think those are going to be kind of the key players in in alternative energy for us anyway mm-hmm. i bet so, uh I'm, I'm excited to see these kinds of things uh start kind of getting innovated and getting into the news yeah i yeah, bet we sure. have uh some uranium too 
Saskatchewan has uranium, <laughs> so I'm sure we have it. Yeah. Do they have uranium? Oh, I think I remember seeing a map showing that. They yeah, do. it's yeah. it's funny because uh, the uranium that powers Ontario's uh, nuclear power plants, it all comes from Saskatchewan, despite the fact that Ontario has enough uranium deposits to entirely power everything from nuclear for the next hundred years. They still buy it from Saskatchewan because it's just cheaper to mine in Saskatchewan. Huh. Makes sense. They don't have to dig through the shield. Maybe that might be the issue. No, there's shield in Saskatchewan. Is there? Oh, yeah. Where? Like what? Saskatoon? Saskatoon Manitoba, maybe. What? Like, the Canadian shield actually goes through most of the country, hence the name. No. <laughs> is it is it as close to the surface as... Oh, well, it is on Ontario. Maybe not, but I mean, up near Saskatoon and stuff like that. Basically, the boreal forests are shield, as I understand it. Oh. I guess yeah. northern. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. down south, uh, like, <laughs> I think the shield is there, but, you know, it's the grasslands, so not quite as barren. Right. Mm. Yeah. Mike, Shoot. you wanted to talk about chemistry, but you didn't want. I did. You didn't want to talk about it. I wanted us to talk about yeah. it. I'd, I'd comment. I wouldn't have too much to say myself on it, though. Right. I'm interested to hear what you guys think are the implications of, of this news, though. And what is this news? This this news, and again, I don't know why these are never bigger news, but it seems like a big deal to me, that there's four new elements. <gasps> they, were, they were predicted to be there. They're mm-hmm. expected to be found at some point, and they've been found or generated. Created, or, yeah. Created, I guess. Uh, so specifically 113, 115, 117, 118, indicating the number of protons that these elements have. Yeah. Um, they've been generated or created in a, I don't know actually where it was created. A bunch of different countries. Didn't see a bunch of different countries, apparently not CERN, but, uh, at, at various countries. And so IUPAC recognized them as being discovered and they've invited naming propositions to come forward from the discovering groups mm-hmm. so guys what what does this mean it means Nick? the periodic tables from now on will appear slightly differently <laughs> <laughs> that's Newton. kind of the only effect that anyone in the normal population would probably notice anyway yeah mm-hmm. well i mean rob if you have anything to say by all means well i, I would say like the the very top of this announcement from iupac uh, which is the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, is that we have now completed, like our periodic table as it stands right now doesn't have any gaps anymore. Right. And all that's left to to discover, really, unless we start getting into crazy science, is the super heavy elements that have been rumored to exist. Uh, but that we, like, the, so the, there's seven rows in the periodic table and they're all full. But in theory, there's nothing stopping other than instability, there's nothing stopping more electrons from being added or more protons from being added to stabilize a, a heavier element. Well, what I was going to say is, like, the table as we see it now is complete until right. we add another row because we get exactly. some heavier elements. <laughs> by, well, by electrons, do you mean neutrons? No. So, I mean, when, when I say electrons, like, you'd, need, you'd have pairs of electrons and protons. Neutrons just get sprinkled in to make things 
stable, but the actual thing that would make it a new element is having a proton and a matching electron to to stabilize the charge. Oh, okay. Gotcha. But the electron itself doesn't make it a new element. You still need that proton. Right. Like, yeah, it's the yeah. proton that makes it a new element. If right. you alter the number of what, electrons, what you have is an ion, so just a charged atom. Right. So when I when I mention electron, it's because I was thinking about it in in terms of the period. So when you open up a new, when you open up a new row, that would be a new electron shell. So I was thinking adding the electron, but the the thing that makes it a new element, it would be the proton. Right. Yeah. As will so as will shock. Well, I would say nobody, but the chemists. <laughs> Chemists tend to look at the periodic table and think of electrons because it's the electrons yeah, exactly. that do the interesting things in terms of chemistry. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you do get the extra electrons because there is another proton in the atom. But I mean, that's just details. It's the electrons. Like, what could they do? Yeah. Right. As it's interesting just hearing about how these types of elements are created because. I guess they're very quickly decaying because of how heavy they are. Oh, yes. Yeah. And like just he- like reading in this article, I don't know if it was the IUPAC one or, or the second one, the Vox article that I read originally, how like the decay times, like the half-life is incredibly, incredibly fast. Like if you blink, you miss it. Well, and if you blink, you have you're not missed. having people looking for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Like yeah. you have computers detecting them. You don't have people mm. looking for them. So it's it's cool. I like this kind of science. Yeah. Um, it, I'm looking right now at the Wikipedia entry for the last one, the, the so-called noble gas, because in theory it's stable. Uh, it's mean, the least stable of all the noble gases. <laughs> um, but it's the most stable of these new elements? Wait, no. Helium yeah. is more is more noble. Helium's the most noble, isn't it? No. It's, I mean, of the new ones that have been discovered, it's, it's theoretically oh, it's supposed the to most, be stable. Okay, yeah. I mean, this if is the, the least nucleus stable, stable, wasn't tremendously gas. unstable to begin with, it would be the <laughs> yeah. most stable. Yes. Uh, so element number 118 decays in less than 1.9 milliseconds. And then that that product, um, I don't even know what all... I, I, I haven't actually looked at the periodic table since other new elements were added. Like a bunch of, well, not new elements. So they used to all have designations like ununoctium, which is 118 in Latin. Um, they, th- there are elements like that that have been given names, either scientist uh, names or based on the place where they were discovered, things like that. So then th- that uh, 118 decays to another thing with the, the symbol LV, which is has <laughs> then 10 milliseconds later decays uh and then that third product decays in 0.16 seconds so we're getting more stable only 0.16 seconds to a fourth product and then that fourth product in 1.9 milliseconds decays again so like within less than a second you get like not only is the thing you were looking at gone but it's already (laughs) turned into four different things and then none of those exist anymore so what does it ultimately decay into it's not even clear to me yet because you have to follow the whole path. Oh, I guess you'd have to go all the way back, yeah. Um, and so, I, yeah, you can look through. And, and so all of these ones aren't necessarily uh, decayed. So the Ananoctium 118 decays into Livermorium, which is named for Livermore. And then... <laughs> Say what? Livermorium <laughs> is named after Livermore? <laughs> That, I believe that's the university where it was 
discovered. Yeah, no, it's it's good. Uh, and then as so I'm looking, like FL is completely uh, like I've never heard of the the uh, element FL, and I don't even see it here. Like in some cases, there's also different names whether when there's competing claims for an element. Mm. Oh, okay. Uh, I imagine but so FL is fluorovium. I that, uh, FL is just going to cause problems for first year students. For fluorine. Yeah. Yes. I was just saying like, that's, isn't fluorine. that fluoride? Yeah. <laughs> or fluorine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, so yeah, one, the next one is 114, which is fluorovium, which is named after the Fluorov laboratory in Russia. And the last one is CN, which is 112. Is that Copernicium? Which it, yeah, that's Copernicium. Uh, which has a half life of 29 seconds. Wow. And then long one. Yeah. I know, right. (laughs) And it decays into, I guess in general, these ones tend to go towards lead unless they split in half. Some of them split into much smaller things, but lead tends to be the thing that Hmm. uh, most of these turn into eventually after a few well, seconds, or in this case, I guess a few minutes. Lead's the last stable element, really. The la- yeah, the last long-term stable one. Unless we're talking about mm-hmm. technetium, which is just weird, and yeah, we won't talk about <laughs> technetium. <laughs> but yeah, the, this whole world is is very new. We haven't really done much research with it, but the the craziest thing is that. To get these elements, you have to take something that's already unstable, like californium, like for, for ononoctium as an example again, you have to take californium, which is itself radioactive and unstable, and hit it with calcium, which is a pretty big uh, atom. And just mathematically, the way it works out, when you add those two together, you get something that in theory should be stable. So they just keep trying this at higher and higher energies of, of collision. And what you end up getting is a few atoms of something that last for in this case less than a millisecond and if you do that enough if you get i think it's usually three uh three experiments that are successful in in creating elements that have at least a few atoms you get to name it and so basically what, it, what this means is like something like 10 or 20 atoms of this have ever been created and they've all lasted for less than a millisecond right. but that's that's what we designate as being enough for having discovered it you're still at the mercy of statistics too, aren't you? Yep. When you do that smashing, mm-hmm. like quantum physics. And yeah. That kind of you stuff. you yeah. smash literally 10 to the 23 or 10 to the 24 atoms together and you get a few collisions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's crazy. Yeah. The, like the big thing with this kind of science is, have you seen the nuclear stability belt, Mike? No. Okay. I may have. I don't remember. Though. So it's like atomic number plotted against uh, mass number. Okay. And so, you know, when you start out, it's more or less like one to one. Each proton will have one neutron, maybe differences sure. because of isotopes. But as you get higher and higher, you <laughs> get more and more neutrons proportionally speaking. And the mm-hmm. the usual like layman's reason why is that you've got so much positive charge stuck into the nucleus together that you need those neutral charges to kind of dilute it so it doesn't just okay explode apart, yeah. yeah so i mean what they've hypothesized is that going higher and higher you will have islands of stability is the term i believe so you're hoping yeah. that you will be able to make these supermassive atoms 
But by doing so, you might understand what makes them stable in the first place because right now apparently it's it's kind of like spin with nuclei as far as i know it's just kind of mm-hmm. like you ask someone why is this the way it is and people go mm-hmm. <laughs> yep yeah but you use a, you use that fact like that knowledge to help you even though you don't really know why it's like that well it's like i, I don't know like getting a larger data set might reveal clues as to why why nuclear stability works as it does like yep. why are why do you usually find uranium two thirty five and two thirty eight and not two thirty six and two thirty seven? Mm-hmm. It's just that kind of thing. It's just yeah, yeah. all of a sudden it's stable and it works, and we don't really know why. So that's that's I guess the main academic driver of this kind of thing. But it's yep. it's interesting. So. Four new elements announced at one at once is also yeah. kind of interesting. I mean, I'm sure yeah. people in the know knew that it was coming if they were reading the papers, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah. And when I guess these were actually discovered or created X amount of time ago, and they were only just recently confirmed by IUPAC, okay. yes, being yep. co- like approved, I guess. Yeah. So it's not like they were all conveniently discovered at the same time. The yeah. the like head of IUPAC has like a big red or green pen and like gives green check or red x as the final <laughs> then they hold it up to a large stadium and the nerds everywhere applaud <laughs> what i think yep. i think they, sh- they they should crowdsource names for these elements i think that would cool. go so poorly <laughs> well, you'd, you'd have 4chan would 4chan have a field yeah, day. I was gonna say. <laughs> i'm glad about yeah 4chan would definitely troll that yeah oh yeah yeah um but i also think it's interesting that you don't actually find the elements you find the radioactive traces that they were there yep (laughs) just because you're looking at decay patterns and not much else which on that note are you guys should we just tease that there might be a new particle discovered at cern do we know anything about that i don't know anything i hadn't heard anything about that oh there were a bunch of stories out how did I find these stories? Actually, you know what? At least half of that might be Kaya because I basically have a staff staff writer. Confidential privileged information that you have <laughs> access to. No, it's just she comes across news stories and goes, Oh, this might be useful. You should you should give have her on her Slack channel and she can just post them. Yeah. Why would or, I subject someone else to Slack? Slack is the best. Oh my goodness, it's so good. You know what she does? Um, Currently, she sends them to me via Hangouts, and then I archive them. So why aren't you posting them to Slack? <laughs> can't give can't give away all my stories. You might replace me with a That's robot. Fair. Who is that robot on our automation episode? That's, That's true, Nick Alex. <laughs> yeah, you could just program Nick Nickbot to chime in every ten minutes. Go, wait, wait, wait. What was that, Rob? <laughs> what time are we doing this show <laughs> i think you're looking at a connotative definition rather than the annotative one <laughs> interesting this is uh yeah we're gonna have to talk about this yeah this this particle will have to do i'll have to do more research at least because there's not a whole lot here but basically they're still saying it could be a statistical bump but independent teams at cern both discovered it on, at the atlas and cms uh colliders 
They're two of a kind. They're looking for whatever new particles they can find. <laughs> Thank you. No problem. Um, before we move away from this, because I, I find this stuff all so fascinating, uh, I have to recommend a YouTube channel. If you guys are both not watching it, you should start watching it if you're really ready to have your mind blown. Uh, the channel is called PBS Space Time. And I post videos from there sometimes when they when they particularly blow my mind. But every week or so, they they release episodes talking about quantum mechanics, talking about quantum physics, and it, it, all the vid- like. I can't even I couldn't begin to do them justice because I'm now going back through the back catalog, trying to get caught up on what all these things actually mean, like trying to learn learn the background of of quantum mechanics because I thought I knew, but I turns out I have no idea. And you can, I can, I can watch these videos so many times and it all, it all comes out so interesting, but I still have no idea how to actually come to a f- complete understanding of it, but I'll put a link to it, but check out PBS space time because it's such a cool channel. And the, the, there's so much more knowledge that is out there about physics and about the world on that sort of tiny scale than I ever thought we knew already. Yeah. Well, Rob, how do you crazy. how do you feel about matrix algebra? Because apparently, if you really want to understand quantum mechanics, Nick, I hated linear algebra so much. Yeah, so did I. I thought it was I, like I the never worst understood thing. it. Yeah, yeah. You just you just kind of try and remember enough to do the problems and pass the course, and it's like everyone who's ever complained about math to me. <laughs> And who's ever told me, like, honestly, I just don't get it. I just try and remember how to do the problem so that I can pass the course and never deal with this again. Like, for the longest time, I just didn't understand. And then I did linear algebra. And it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. Just need to remember how to do these problems so I never have to do it again. (laughs) See, I enjoy vector algebra. And matrices are just groups of vectors. I I hated vector algebra. I think if you approach matrix algebra as vector algebra, a bunch of vector algebra, I think you'd probably do better. And I didn't realize that when I was doing matrix algebra, so I hated it like you guys. Like eigenspaces and eigenvalues? Mm. But that's the thing. Like eigenvalues and eigenvectors, those have analogs to what we've already been familiar with working with. They just have different names and different ways of coming up with them. Mm. So All of that, like that entire course, I passed that course... Because of a bell curve. That was like, the only... Like, like, I, I, like I, eigenvectors, I, if I remember correctly, are like roots of a matrix. Like the same way that you have roots of a quadratic or a polynomial, right? So if you think of eigenvectors as roots, then that should kind of clarify things maybe. You're saying a lot of words that I recognize <laughs> from that class. But honestly, Kate, that exam, the final exam that was worth most of our final score in that class... I left probably more than half the questions completely blank because I just did not understand Wait. anything from that class. I would need to take it four more times before Rob, I understood it. I was the, I did the exact same thing when I took the course. It's now only that I've actually used matrix and vector algebra yeah. in my work that it's like, oh, this makes sense now. I would love to get that. If you have any teaching materials, I, w- I would honestly love to learn it because that is the biggest thing that's missing from my understanding of math right. and science. Uh, seriously though i <laughs> uh, if i come across anything that i if you learned from any resources i would love to see okay. those i remember like 
You know how some lectures will take you through like a story of something and then they'll say like, and this is exactly what we were looking for, what we were looking at before. <laughs> and everyone goes, wow, that's amazing. And then they try and do that for linear algebra. They're like, look, it's just a multiple of the original matrix. And people are like, yeah. Uh? <laughs> it's an eigenfunction or an eigenvalue. And you're like, yeah. Uh? <laughs> yeah. It, that never made any sense to me. Oh man. I'm, having, I'm gonna have a nightmare tonight. <laughs> yep. Anyway. I, all right, let's let's leave that hellscape behind. Uh okay. I, I say, and talk about something. I want to say is, one more thing about matrices. They are the perfect okay. thing for computers to work on, but when you're trying to solve like a ten by ten or something like that, every single time, like People will make a simple arithmetic error at some point or another, and the whole thing is ruined from there. And that's just – that's matrix algebra for you. It's like Sudoku, but vital yeah. to our understanding of the universe. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, oh. So I don't know how much you guys paid attention to this, uh, this announcement from the Canadian Space Agency and our new Minister for oh. Science – uh, innovation and something else that I can never remember. Um, but he, he's our main science minister. Uh, he went down to somewhere in, in, I think it was like Vaughan, Ontario or something where they have the, uh, headquarters of the Canadian space agency. And in Vaughan? he, so sorry. In Vaughan. I, I, what a strange I'll look place. it up. <laughs> Uh, nope. Completely wrong. St. Hubert, Quebec. That makes equal Less amounts sense? of sense. <laughs> okay. That is where there is a Canadian space agency thing. Uh, anyways, so they announced, uh, a bunch of funding for a company, uh, a Canadian company that's actually based out of Ottawa for it didn't seem like a bunch of funding well okay it within relative scales not a bunch it's a 1.7 million dollar contract for a new visual system for the international space station and so reading this made me or listening to part of the announcement that i did listen to and then reading about it afterwards i do not know or i have not been keeping up on my iss and especially the Canadian involvement in the ISS, because I thought the Canada arm was still there. And it turns out it was decommissioned a really long time ago. Oh, really? And now there's a Canada arm two that's up there, but okay. the, the original one was brought down with the last, I think it was one of the last space shuttle missions. So like it was a really long time ago. And, uh, so this new system will be, will function in collaboration with Two, so there's a Canada Arm 2 and there's also a third module built by Canadian, the Canadian Space Agency or in collaboration with them. Uh, it's called Dextra because it's very dexterous and moves around a lot. And so this new thing, this new vision system is going to be mounted on Dextra and it has a, among other things, a 3D laser, which sounds awesome. Uh, <laughs> it has cameras in both visual and high and uh, infrared. And it's going to be used to detect um, possible damage or like micro uh, fractures to the International Space Station. So it'll be able to go around on the outside of the space station, take really high definition images and and image things in the infrared to see if there's any. Um, so, Nick, I feel it's like doing this is NDT. where you're, 
this is what your job should be. You should apply to go up there. But basically what they're saying is uh, what, what has to happen now is either you have to go to a spacewalk or they have to use whatever camera they can take outside manually to, to look for damage every time something happens. Whereas this could basically, it, it, this is actually going to be controlled mostly from the ground. And they would just be able to monitor it constantly, what's going on, see if there's any damage, see if there's anything that could be sort of damaged in a way that it won't cause anything immediate, but over time could catastrophically fail or something. Uh, so the the whole thing itself is about the size of a microwave oven, so they say. And one of the coolest things I, I think that I read out of this is that all of these images are that the both cameras, the infrared and the visual, uh, the visible one take are public domain. So they have to like NASA does, they have to post the images. And so we're going to be able to see up close the outside of the ISS that like we haven't really seen before, because this is like a brand new state of the art camera that's going to be going up by 2020. Hmm. So Very are excited. we going to call it the Canada eye, like the Canada eye? Ooh, that would be cool. I thought I read that somewhere. That, that that is actually what they're going to call it. I'm not even joking. This is on Good. Twitter. I was going to say because I, I feel like Canada no, was I, okay, but <laughs> it's like pun intended. I feel like Canada may be reaching a little, <laughs> a little maybe. Yeah. Like I thought, I thought I read Canada Eye somewhere, and I'm like, oh yeah, that reminded me of the Canada Arm, and then and that's exactly what though. it was. I'm pr- I'm pretty sure it was Canada Eye. Canada Eye. Uh, I'm seeing on Twitter people announcing, although maybe this is Canadaser. There's one guy talking about he referenced Canada. Uh, the who is this guy? He is the U.S. Canadian ambassador. The U.S. ambassador to Canada tweeted about it, calling it the Canada. Yeah, it's 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 a thing, whether it's official or not. Right. People are talking about it in that way. Yeah. Well, there's. Cool. There's an existing nomenclature, and now it's an eye instead of an arm. Right. Yeah, for sure. You should just write sorry oh. on the outside of it, but with like the little grammatical line over top of the O. Like right. Say sorry. There. So there is actually CBC News alerts even use the term Canada Eye. Yeah. Interesting. And there's this, this Chinese news site that. Calls it the Canada Eye. <laughs> <laughs> I think CBC News Alerts is probably the, the main one there. Yeah. But yeah, so Canada staying involved with space exploration and even in the small capacity where we're kind of doing maintenance on the ISS because it's, it's getting pretty old. The ISS has been up there for a really long time now. Eventually, it'll, we'll have to get something new to supersede it. We'll have like a, yeah. a full-fledged... I don't even know, like some something from futuristic sci-fi. Yeah. Well, and if it keeps people like the astronauts inside the space station more mm-hmm. and doesn't require them to go out, then that yeah. helps too, safety-wise. Like, yeah, for sure. This might be an East meets West topic, mm-hmm. but Canada is definitely a functional power, and that's like the role they've chosen to adopt. Not a superpower, but <laughs> like it's just a reality. Like we can't yeah. with our population and our current setup be a superpower but like in certain capacities we act as though we might be one 
Right. Well, we're we're leading. Yeah, we're leading the world in a lot of specific. I would say we are we are punching above our weight. Is the thing. Yeah. So again, this is not coming in coming online until 2020, but they'll be working on it. And yeah, you mentioned 1.7 million dollars is not a ton of money, but it's not small change. Like the no, the contract is. I get up and walk around for 1.7 million. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It it's technology they're already developing it's it's just for the module to go yeah. up right yeah okay uh how about next nick let's talk about your other story next are, are we still going on i think it's we're coming over an hour and a half now. oh so now you want to stop <laughs> it, do you guys want to do you want to stop there and then talk about an fc nfc in an after show we could do that well, in that case, I'd like to thank you all very much for bearing with us through our insane number of stories and follow and length of follow-up. We'll be back next week with more Science and Tech Talk. You can find past episodes of this show and much more at unwindmedia.com slash future chat. See you next time. Ciao. Toodaloo. All right, Mike, NFC, you said something that raised a lot of ire in my mind last week. <laughs> Yes. I, I didn't say something. I posed a question. You tweeted something that was... I, I offered people to give feedback. It's very inflammatory. It was not inflammatory at all. What happened? It seemed inflammatory. What's this? So, so my question was, because I, I I saw a story on, it was probably Apple Pay or one of those type things, how revolutionary it is and how excited people are about it. And my question was, to those that are as excited about it as they are, what added benefit or difference do they see in the utility of a apple pay samsung pay what have you type system as opposed to just your regular tap and pay i might i might have something for this for you we we've talked about this before but i don't know if we went anywhere with it or concluded anything but it's coming up again because apple pay is being integrated into a lot of places samsung pay is coming out and all that kind of stuff so rob I'll I'll let you give your initial impression on the question and your thoughts, and I'm interested to hear what Nick thinks too because he seems to have some feedback on it. Okay, uh, for reference, Nick, you will you'll get a chance to. Do, Nick, do you would you rather start? Uh, what I'll do is I'll. Read. You can start if you want. I just it's Rob was the one that wanted. To well, I might have this. context I'll, as to why it's exciting. Yeah. Okay. I'll Go I'll ahead. read Mike's question and then you can. Say why it's exciting. So Nick, Mike okay. said, honest question to those excited, so excited for phone-based NFC payment ability. How are these better or different than tap and pay card-based NFC? Okay. So I listened to NPR's podcast, Planet Money. Mm. It's a shame I don't have a pop filter there. Um, <laughs> but Planet Money did a story not long ago. Well, they keep repeating it, I think. But they did a story on credit card signatures and why they're necessary. And they talked, you know, they talked a lot about it. Like, you know, uh, they assume that there are people like handwriting analysts collecting these receipts and looking them over. And apparently they used to do that. Like it used to be full-time jobs. You'd have document analysts sitting back there and comparing to stock signatures. Mm-hmm. But the problem was that like, Every single time, like 
whatever the sample size of actual fraudulent signatures were, it wasn't getting caught by like just the number of man hours they could possibly use on it. Right. It was just like total sense. Yep. Matches. Yep. Matches. Yep. Matches. Like all day long, every single day. And so eventually they realized that it just wasn't worth doing that. You would just Mm -hmm. wait and see if there was a dispute. So when they actually look at the signatures, when they actually look at they being who uh, banks, credit card companies, whatever, when the signatures on receipts are actually looked at, it's a result of credit card theft or fraud where there's a disputed charge. The customer mm-hmm. call, will call right. up and say, I didn't, I didn't buy this. Like, this isn't me. And so the credit card company or the, uh, what's it? Place. Vendor? Yeah, the vendor. Like the word. Place, the, Sorry. The, yeah. So the vendor or the credit card company will then be on the hook for it. And the vendor mm-hmm. doesn't have to pay if they asked for a signature. So regardless right. of who actually signed it. Exactly. So right. if okay. the vendor asked for a signature, they're essentially asking for, you know, the signed contract. I agree to pay, blah, blah. So they yeah, did yeah. their due diligence by asking for a signature. And the onus is then on the credit card company to say whether or not that signature is valid. So basically, vendor pays if you didn't get a signature. Credit card company pays if you did. So mm-hmm. then they're talking. They, they went on this big, long 20-minute story about credit card signatures and why on earth you would bother. And then they come on and go, now, there is a better way. And I'm like, yes, God, the (laughs) pin, the pin number. And it's like, there are some places in Europe that have little (laughs) chips in their cards where you can can plug it in and just enter a pin number just like you do on an ATM. And I'm like, yes, it's the obvious answer. Why are you not doing this? How are you the most powerful nation on earth and you don't do this? (laughs) and so yeah the answer is Mm -hmm. that the united states signs for everything credit card related (laughs) apparently up until very recently they don't have the chip they don't have the pin number and tap must be like this weird futuristic (laughs) future like well one day we'll be able to just tap and pay for things they're like oh my god we could do that with the iphone we could do it with the iphone like or a card like (laughs) so yeah there's there's places in the states that have or will be getting apple pay before tap cards or pin cards yes that is why it's such a huge deal I didn't think about it that way. I can actually appreciate that. Because, like, thank you if for you, that. If you went back to when you had to sign for every single thing you paid for with credit card, like, yeah, yeah it'd be a pain. Okay. I'd love for the pin or tap system. Sidebar: There have been. I we recently got got new credit cards because I guess Mastercard detected a risk with ours, so they like here's some new numbers. Mm-hmm. So it took me a bit to find a pen that actually worked on the back of it because for some reason pens don't sign backs of credit cards very well. Nope. So. I was like, well, I'll just leave it on sign for now. Most of the time I'm using my pin anyway. So there are two times where the systems, I think it tangentially mentioned this on Slack, how the ta- the pin failed, the tap and pay didn't work. So they're like, okay, swipe. So I did two instances where I had to swipe without a signature on the back. Yeah. And then I just signed the receipt when there's no signature on the back. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's one thing. And then another side note is 
our my debit card recently got skimmed apparently oh. and then someone in indonesia was withdrawing money off of it that seems pretty easy to detect fraud <laughs> yeah well the so the yeah so the bank called me he's like so there's like three in a row transactions from indonesia where their atm withdrawals is that you it's like uh no <laughs> so like okay so we'll send this to our group and they'll refund you whatever um so that's no big deal like they're gonna refund me but those are kind of two downfalls of the swipe swipe system slash swipe and sign system because yeah. it not only leaves risk of fraud but you can just skim a stripe versus that pin which from my understanding the chip is a bit more secure and not as easy to just kind of pull information off of as right. a swiped card so two points in favor of chip slash pin yeah or tap slash chat chip rob late late on me so let's just let's figure out what your actual what you're saying is phone-based nfc is not better than card-based nfc is that what you're saying like that's I'm your main mostly i'm mostly saying that the act of reaching to my wallet pulling out a credit card and tapping versus pulling out my phone which may or may not already be in my hand but that's a side point so let's say pulling out my phone going into an app or putting my thumb on my fingerprint reader and tapping my phone isn't enough of a different action mm-hmm. for me to warrant it as a groundbreaking exciting technology right and in your in that i guess not your defense in the defense of that argument it's not as big a deal in canada as it was in the u.s like as of right now at least for apple pay the u.s like a bunch of banks are on board like hundreds or even thousands yep. of banks are on board but in Canada, American Express is the only thing that you can use Apple Pay with. And Google Wallet is is doing fine now that kind of... Because before in the States, there was no real impetus for vendors to actually go and get NFC terminals. And now with Apple Pay, Apple is working with them and being like, listen, this is what's happening. You should do this. And at the same time, the, the government is also turning around. And, and now at some point, I forget when it is, but it's within the next year, maybe two, um, they're man- mandating having to use chip and pin in U.S. credit card transactions, possibly also debit. But it's that legislation has gone through and is just a matter of sort of when the deadline is for needing to support it. But in Canada, it's a lot less important because we've had tap to pay for at least a year or two pretty much everywhere and so in terms of convenience and security i agree it's not super different it's not as important in canada but in terms of having only one thing and being able to not only pay but also uh have rewards cards and have uh vendor gift cards or vendor points cards also going through nfc with one tap that could be that would be the system where you wouldn't have to carry around a, like 20 or 30 cards for each of the stores you go to you would just have one thing and you'd put your thumb on it and it would know a you're shopping at the grocery store you always shop at and so it would it would run your points card through and it would also pay for the transaction and that transaction would not only be very secure but if someone if the vendor you're you're dealing with quote unquote, stole your credit card information from that transaction, they wouldn't be getting your credit card number. So you wouldn't have to be issued a new credit card. They would be getting a one-time transaction ID 
and which is useless because right. it only works for that one transaction that's authorized at the time. Right. And even if you do need to get be issued a new credit card, your bank can automatically go into your phone and swap out the numbers. So if you get issued a new credit card number, it all happens in the background automatically and you're just issued a new number virtually and there's no need like you'd eventually be mailed a new number uh, or a new credit card, physical credit card, but you wouldn't actually you'd be able to just go on with your life if you were if someone uh, committed fraud against you. It's not like you'd be without a credit card. You would mm. just have to like basically refresh the app and it would get your new number. Mm. So there are a lot of reasons like security being probably the biggest one because credit card companies don't want to be on the hook for these transactions. Like they don't want to be on the hook for fraud. And this is one way to substantially reduce fraud right now. And even right. when like, there's always the thing of people are like fraudsters are going to go for whichever is the least secure technology. And so right now this being the least secure technology uh, or sorry, this being the most secure technology, it's untouchable. But once this becomes the standard, yes, it's not necessarily, we haven't really seen much of it, but it's not impossible to, to exploit the system. But the exploits that we have seen, and there are articles about this when Apple Pay first launched, it was like, oh, you know, I got Apple Pay credit card fraud committed against me. But it turns out it was just something insecure the credit card companies or the banks were doing. And it had nothing to do with the insecurity of Apple Pay. So it was like right. once, once, banks smooth that out everything is fine and it's in like vastly more secure to use uh any kind of nfc but with the phone-based nfc it's all virtual and you don't actually need uh a physical card to change if something does happen to the card this doesn't even begin to get into the fact that with the apple watch you literally just have to because it's already authenticated by being connected to a heartbeat Right. You literally just tap a button twice and you put your wrist on the thing and you've paid for something. Like you don't have to take anything out. You can be holding stuff in both hands or in one hand at right. least and you can still do it. It's there are a lot of reasons and yeah. Future is a good reason. Aside from this being like the first worldliest of first world problems. <laughs> well, <laughs> everyone has to pay for stuff. It's not really first world. It's just well, that it hasn't gotten adopted. I need to spend an extra five seconds to pull out my card. But aside I'm from sitting that. here at the end of the grocery <laughs> checkout with all my fresh, affordable food behind me that's guaranteed to be safe, basically. I have to pull something out of my pocket. <sighs> that I've been standing in line for five minutes already that I could have pulled that out already. But Nope. I don't think anybody we... is making that argument, though. Nobody's like... Come on, this is so much faster than taking out a NFC-based credit card. That's no, not... I, I don't disagree with the security aspects that you're talking about. Yeah. And I remember I'd read somewhere that the tap NFC for cards uses a similar transaction ID system. But I don't think... I think the vendor might still get your credit card info. But when it's the transactions made from the vendor to the credit card, I think there's a transaction ID. Somewhere along there, yeah. there's some sort of... They could... Trans- they can still look at your credit card... And get all the information they need to make a payment. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Something on their end still sees your credit card info. Yeah. But yeah, I think what you're saying with the Apple Pay, the info stays with Yeah, Apple. they never actually see the card. Right. Yeah. Or not with Apple. Well, probably with Apple somewhere, but in secure encrypted servers or whatever. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about, and I'm assuming you brought it up because I had a story on it, but with the Cardberry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Cardberry app and system. 
they basically use a card reader to import card info. So be it membership cards, gift cards, credit cards, debit cards, that kind of thing. And it's stored in an app similar to Passbook or Wallet, mm-hmm. as it's now known as. And you just go into the app, select which card you want to use, and you have the one single, what's called a Cardberry card, that makes the transaction or the swipe. Uh, regardless of what type of card you're trying to use, you just select it within the app. So it's similar to the Tim Hortons ones that they have now, where you can flip between the gift card yeah. and the credit card, yeah. which is kind of which I thought was cool when they first came up with it. But this sounds like a similar type system where it's one card that makes multiple types of uh, readings from the Stripe. The one issue is. If it's limited to being a swipe, you might have some places. I don't know if they'll ever not accept the swipe because I think you can always disable the tap and some people just don't have chip cards. So they'll have to always have the swipe. But I don't know if there's some places that you won't be able to swipe a card. You'd have to use a chip or a tap. Right. Maybe that'd be more in the future, but I guess as long as swipes around, then this is a kind of a cool thing, but I don't think this Cardberry system is actually available yet. I think it's still a crowdfunding at the crowdfunding stage, possibly. Right. Or VC stage, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of a cool application of the, the app based authentication. I've also seen some, um, I mean, from working with retail, I've seen some of the new apps that basically manage all your loyalty cards. Yeah. yeah. Those are also fantastic. Just spectacular. I, I've actually, I tried coming up with a system for it that I just, I photocopied or scanned, I guess, all my loyalty cards <laughs> into a Google Keep document as images. So now I can just go into that and just grab... Most of the time, I just have to read out the membership, or they read off the membership number and punch it in by hand because f- there's but the barcodes they're not crisp enough to scan with their scanners, and a lot of scanners can't read like a phone, mm, yeah, right, uh, display. Like I know Cineplex, they can read because of the scene thing, and then Starbucks, they their scanners can read, yeah, the phone. But a lot of like most scanners won't be able to read the phone yeah. display. Like, second cup readers can definitely read my phone screen. But, oh, what is it? The can't. It's, oh, the bay. The bay can't read phone screens, right. which is hilarious. Yeah. But every system will, you, you're able to hand enter in a, a membership number. Like, yeah. whether the person on the other end knows you can, it's like, just type it in. Yeah. Like, barcodes are just numbers. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. did, uh, <laughs> does, does Android, when you open the wallet app and you have connected stuff, does the app crank the brightness way up? Because I found increasing contrast, so, like the iPhone does that every time you open. In Canada, the Android wallet doesn't have support. No, but I mean like these, so these loyalty apps, I guess. Oh. Uh, like if I open wallet, it just cranks the screen brightness way, like to the maximum. No, then, I usually have to do that by hand. Okay. Like I have to go in and Because upping it. the contrast definitely helps. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll usually try to, to increase it, but it's just in general card, like readers, because I have it for like my library card. Mm. So... But and I've tried using it on the scanner at the library and it doesn't work. Interesting, because it's just the simple like red line. Yeah, I think you need the kind of like swirly type. Every direction, yeah. Yeah. So, um, before I don't know how much more you guys have to say, but there is specifically, I feel like we've probably talked about Square, and if we haven't, um, you probably know something about it. But they're a company that has like a swipe thing that you plug into your phone and you can accept payments via app via swipe yeah 
they now in the states at least have launched uh an nfc one that also in, accepts chips oh nice so like chips or the nfc tap both oh cool yeah uh so it's like a, it's a little square thing that has a tapping surface but it also has a little slot that you can slide the card in and it works wirelessly so you can it connects to a phone but it doesn't actually need to be physically oh, cool. connected to it does it have like a dongle or uh no it like connects in? via bluetooth i think it is oh nice yeah or, or it like interfaces via bluetooth maybe connects via ad hoc wi-fi or something but yeah right very cool and that's like square is really cool i've thought about getting it just because anytime i ever need to accept money from people this the when when they first launched the square reader just the one that plugged into your headphone jack it was i think it was cost ten dollars but it gave you a ten dollar credit when you got it so it's effectively free this one's 49 dollars right now and it's just launched uh so the, really the only for a business the only cost is that it's 2.5 percent um that they take to give to credit card companies and that they use to stay in business but it's it's very affordable to to have a business and and accept any kind of payment now right one of the alternative is like emts you're you're having to charge like the person on the other end is paying a buck 50 yeah. to make that transfer so yep. you may as well use the 2.75 percent transaction fee and pass that on to the consumer if you want or just eat that as a convenience cost yeah exactly yes yeah sweet well uh if you guys have nothing more to say on nfc is there anything else you guys want to say before we go yes i started reading on liberty by john stuart mill Okay. And I'm currently on his chapter on liberty of thought and, oh, what is it? Liberty of thought and discussion or something like that. And I'm currently just getting into the part where he's talking about like uh, suppression of opinions and why that's fundamentally wrong. And I feel like that it's interesting because like the reasons he's bringing up are that, you know, these ideas are clearly wrong and they're damaging to things but then he goes on to explain why just shutting down that kind of opinion is wrong and i think a lot about climate change when that happens and like okay. how like i know that or i know that the prevailing scientific opinion is what it is and it's probably right and then there's like all the deniers who or skeptics as they'll call themselves <laughs> Yeah, but I also think there's an implicit assumption in the essay that people are reasonable and like he says, you know, if you can't refute an idea with, you know, truth or your information, then the idea deserves to live. And I'm like, but what if people just don't want to let go? Mm -hmm. What right. What's the ethical answer to that? And so I just thought it was interesting and I thought it was related to what we talk about here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I saw a tweet by Richard Dawkins the other day. It was a retweet. I don't actually follow I'm so him. torn just, on like, Richard Dawkins. You have no idea. Yeah, I know. That's Me a whole too. other discussion. Yeah. But his thing was, if you have a belief, like he, to paraphrase, paraphrase, it was have a belief system, but if you can't defend your beliefs, abandon them. Like, or no, he said, defend your beliefs, but if they don't hold up to the scrutiny mm -hmm. or the argument, abandon them. But then my thought was, well, but if your belief system isn't based on evidence, then that doesn't matter. Yeah. 
you're just gonna continue believing it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's like that's it's just food for you thought. know, like having a utilitarian view towards society. Like I want the most people to be happy. It's like, well, can you defend that? It's like, no, I just want people to be handy or be happy. <laughs> well, then abandon it. Happiness <laughs> means nothing. So that, that's not really the same thing, but I don't know. I'm poor argument, but you know what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> It's, it's more like as far as religious beliefs or, you know, evolution or climate change, that kind of yeah. thing. And it's it, have your beliefs. Say, I don't believe climate change is anthrop, you know, anthropologically, you know, influenced. But it's like, well, based on what's that based on? How about this? How about this? How about this? And if you still don't have an answer for those, then you should say, okay, well, maybe you have a point. Yeah. And abandon that. My, my stance on this, I've repeated, I, I have a few things like either video clips or things that I always come back to. And I, in this case, I always come back to CGP gray in his, I think it was his 1 million subscriber Q and a where he says, have beliefs by all means, but don't, don't define yourself by your beliefs. Be willing to change your mind. And I think that in the, in cases like this where people say, Oh, you know, I don't believe in climate change. They define themselves based on that belief. And it's like, don't do that. You're going to, you're like, you're setting yourself up for failure. If you do that with anything, have a belief, but don't define yourself by it. Yeah. Well, I think that's the issue with religious beliefs because religious beliefs often, if not always call you to define yourself by them. Mm -hmm. Even if even atheism, atheism is essentially a a religious belief. And, you know, like vehement atheists will just they're like i'm an atheist like okay yeah you're never going to change my mind yeah yeah it, yeah being resolute like their that, own yeah it seems silly on either side yeah 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 so what we're saying is agnosticism for the win or 